Hello, welcome to Film Trace. This is a podcast where we trace the life of a film from conception to production, all the way to release and reception. It is, this is our final episode for Self-Aware Horror, isn't it? Yeah, this is the cycle finale. I don't know what you want to call it. We're going to be like back series? soon. Series? Yeah. Finale? No, series finale. What? No, that's, that's a, that would only work if you we were British. Yeah, that doesn't really work. So we'll call it the <laughs> end of the cycle. It's the end of the cycle. Uh... <laughs> And I don't know how we chose this film. Did I? I did not choose this film. Did I? No, I I chose it because if we were starting with the new Scream, uh, which originated with Wes Craven, sure. it only makes sense to end with where Wes Craven began. Oh God, yes. Where did he begin, Chris? <laughs> what, is, what is this film that you selected? I just want to point that out there. You selected this film. And yeah, I warned I, you. You did. You gave me a very fair and egregious warning and yet i still said i want us to really take a close look at 1972's <laughs> last house on the left why did i do that i i uh i mean well, i was you were curious right oh yeah you know curiosity yeah. killed the cat etc but there is also a part of you know my curiosity that was very much like attuned to and we'll get into this because we're also going to have a little chaser, uh, if, if we weren't getting d- disgusting enough with uh, Roman Polanski at the end of this episode. <laughs> um, uh, I'm curious about this concept, and that's kind of why I think this new format is exciting, one reason anyways, because, you know, when did horror movies become self-aware? Like, yeah. when did they become uh, kind of comments on the genre itself rather than just you know, as we kind of talked about in a couple episodes already this season, just scary, you know? Yeah. And I don't know. I'm, I, I have a lot of thoughts, but may, I, where, should we just begin with, like, where did Last House on the Left come from? And then we can get into the question of how self-aware is it, which I think has – I mean, I, I'm, I'm actually interested in your thoughts on that even more yeah. than, like, the shock value of the film because sure. – I was not expecting it to be as self-aware as it actually was. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's um, it's one of those films that people seek out because it's, it's an exploitation horror film, and the the basics are this: uh, Sean S. Cunningham was uh, essentially a porn director. Uh, they called him white coders back then, but essentially, it was a porn film. Um, graphic sexual scenes were in a movie, but they would put uh, a quote unquote doctor before those scenes that would describe them. And so this is how they got these films into the United States and released like the Supreme court was basically like, yeah, as long as it's educational, we can, we'll allow it. So Sean S Cunningham was doing this stuff. Uh, and he worked on a film. Craven was, um, I believe a professor of English for a while. And, uh, he wanted to get into movies. So he moved to New York. He didn't really have a lot of work, but he, you know, sort of got this job with Sean S Cunningham to uh edit together which is one of these white coder pornographic films Uh, that's always crazy to think about like Wes craven i think he hid this for a while that he got started in pornography a lot of people would probably right um but later you see he was a lot more open with it and so was sean cunningham um so they sort of linked up together worked on this film together was a big hit uh and then hallmark releasing who put out that film was like hey you guys are doing this pretty well here's ninety thousand dollars go out and make a horror film (laughs) <laughs> and that's essentially how this all started. I mean, and this is pure guerrilla filmmaking at its core. And we'll probably talk about the production a little bit later, but it this is the indie of the indie. 
you can't get any more guerrilla filmmaking than this uh, than this movie. Uh, and so that's the impetus of it. And, you know, there's a 2003 documentary about this movie um uh that's that's really good uh in, in a, a lot of interviews with wes and sean uh, it's called cellular crime of the century and so they talk a lot about what their thought process was in making this movie and to boil it down uh, it's essentially um they wanted to make a film that depicted real violence uh, and Cunningham specifically, and, and Sean Cunningham, you might re- recognize that name. He went on to direct and start Friday the 13th. Right. Uh, so also famous in his own right. Um, essentially, there's twofold here. One was they wanted to depict realistic violence o- on screen. Uh, and there's a, some story about how they went to see um, a Western film uh, with Clint Eastwood. And it was all fake. It was bad guys, good guys. And they were like, no, that's not the real world. We want to show realistic violence. And at the same time, we were in Vietnam, the United States, and a lot of footage was coming back uh, to, the, to the U.S. of really graphic violence, really awful, terrible things happening. Um, and I think that's kind of what they at least now this is one of these things where it's like you have the directors and producers talking about it, but you do have to take it with a grain of salt. Um, because you're not really sure if that's what was happening back then. Obviously we weren't, you know, we weren't alive back then. They're reflecting on what they were doing back then. And with time, you might see things differently. Uh, Do you kind of buy that? Uh, not buy is not the right word. Do you (laughs) think that that was the, the true root of this from what you saw on screen? Was this sort of very intellectual perspective? You know, there, there's, there's glimmers of that. and. I think it's all like hindsight 2020 too, because you see where Wes Craven went, not Sean S. Cunningham. I don't think it's very strange to me that I, I see a very distinct divide between like the, the intelligence of yeah. some of Craven's later films versus, you know, where Sean S. Cunningham wound up, uh, especially because, you know, Friday the 13th is the, the original film is the only one he actually directed. And, you know, he stayed yes. involved in the production. But as a filmmaker, I'm just looking at his filmography. And, you know, the only other film I actually know here is uh, Deep Star 6, which is known as like one of the worst sci-fi movies <laughs> of the 80s. So like, the, it, it seems like there's an argument to be made that there was, that, that an attempt was made. But sure, <laughs> how much yeah. that comes through, you also think that, like, maybe in the we'll get into the production of this. Do you think they kind of either a got lost in the weeds uh, somewhere along the way, or yeah. just like let themselves get taken over by you know the exploitation of it all and just yeah. kind of indulged that kind of carnal instinct? Uh, you know, there's there's something to be said for. Uh, you know, having these kinds of thoughts when you're putting a project together, a work of art together, but then also knowing where you are in the landscape of cinema as trash, essentially. Yeah. No, of course. I don't know. What I'm curious, what's your history with this movie, Dan? Because like I just saw this for the first time a few days ago. But yeah. you've, you've known about this a while. <laughs> oh, yeah. So I went through a phase of like watching exploitation films, I think, when I was in college. 
Um, I was at a very conservative college, and for some reason, I I wanted to see all these exploitation films. For, I don't know why. Uh, it was kind of a rebellious <laughs> thing, I think. Um, sure. And uh, yeah, so I I saw this right after I saw I Spit on Your Grave. Have you seen that? Mm. No, you've um, also warned me about that one. Yeah, so very similar sort of um, rape scenes in it, like ex- very explicit. Um, and I saw it back then, and I had always loved Wes Craven and all that, but um, seeing it back then, you know, when I was younger in my twenties, extremely shocking, uh, especially for someone who grew up in kind of a little bit of a bubble. I had never seen anything like that in my entire life, uh, and it was very unnerving uh, and sickening on some level. But I think also at the same time, I've recognized what it was doing because at that time, remember, torture porn was big. This is 2005, 2006, when I think I probably saw it. Um, And so we were seeing this sort of very graphic, awful movies like Saw, movies like Hostel. And I would see those movies in the theater and I'd be like, God, that's like gross and disgusting, but not really that unnerving. When you see something like Last House on the Left and I Spit on Your Grave, it's way more unnerving. Uh, And it's hard to describe why. And I think it it has to do with their approach here. But yeah, I mean, I've seen it, you know, obviously that was like 20 years ago now. Uh, And this is your first time ever seeing it, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Did you have that initial, is there a shock for you? Yeah. I mean, there was also an element, of course, of like uh, setting myself up to be shocked, you know, because of your uh, pretty dire warnings (laughs) beforehand. Yeah. So in some ways, it wasn't quite as shocking as I had anticipated, simply because of that, you know, yeah. uh, high expectation factor. But I do think that I think unnerving is a great word for it because it's not even necessarily what's actually depicted on screen that yeah. is unnerving. It's more the uh, you know everything. I mean, and Craven just got better at this, for lack of a better word. Mm-hmm. He 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 knows how to place the camera and how to follow his characters both literally and figuratively narratively uh in a way that makes you just feel on edge like that kind of suspense mm-hmm. that is wrapped up not only not only in like the classic voyeurism of the horror genre but also this really like kind of intense sneering kind of um i don't know the thing that i kept thinking about obviously was you know everybody thinks when they think of 70s horror, they automatically go to Carpenter's original Halloween, right? Yeah. And obviously there's a, tons of voyeurism and uh, you know, camera following, first-person perspective stuff happening there, and that's what makes Halloween great. Um, but what Craven does here, seven or six years earlier, is like he's he's doing that, but also like trying to create this kind of enveloping feeling where yeah. it's claustrophobic and mm-hmm. it's um almost like uh it, the, the feeling i kept like coming back to is like being a kid and like worried that the bullies are going to come beat you up where <laughs> where it's like it just feels so like rudimentary and primitive to the point where it's just like like you like you said like th- it seems like they're trying to to do that but yeah Oh, because yeah. because the, that, that feeling becomes so overwhelming, um, it's hard to see that in the moment. And that's ultimately, I think, what creates that very unnerving feeling. Like, it's not just suspense. It's straight up like, oh, yeah. I, don't, I don't feel like I should be watching this. 
Yeah, there's definitely that that sense of um yeah, like a taboo. It yeah. feels very taboo. Yeah. And that's what they did. I mean, one thing they mentioned too, you know, the original version of this movie, and there's some there's a lot of weird back and forth in terms of sources on this, but uh it, the original script is called Night of Vengeance. And in this documentary, uh, Cellular Crime of a Century, they talk about this script. And some of the actors in this movie were like, we read this thing. We're like, I'm not doing that. Yeah. There's, there's stuff that's way, way worse than the script. It's never been released. Uh, but they mention a couple of scenes in this documentary. And you're like, oh, wow. Like, just truly disgusting, depraved things. Um. And that's not even what we see. So it's like it's actually a watered down version of Craven's initial vision for all of this, right? Um, which is just like this is like the watered down version. But yeah, I think <laughs> like you, uh, there is something about the vibe to use the Zoomer term um, <laughs> that this movie creates. It is this sense of helplessness, like you feel as if you are being. St- kind of um sucked into like a current and like it it won't stop right and it's this sort of base primal violence and it's you know it's not just the physical violence it's the sexual violence as well yeah yeah that is so um kind of just disgusting uh and it's it it is hard to watch i mean i would never recommend anybody watch this movie like I don't even care. Like the, <laughs> it it doesn't matter how desensitized you are when you see something that's on screen. It I mean the goal here is to make it seem real. It seems real. Yeah. Like and we'll talk a little bit about maybe the the the, the casting, the production, and, and why it seems so real. Um. But if the initial goal was, hey, most movies don't depict real violence. Uh, let's do that. Then it, they hit the nail on the head. Uh, because it, it does come across as very um, documentary. And that was on purpose. Like, in, they were working in an office where there's a lot of documentary filmmakers, and that's kind of how they learned to make films, was through that documentary style. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can see it. Um, I think the, 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 one of the questions you had initially was, like, did they get caught up in it? Yeah. I don't know. Because... One, they neither of them had hardly any experience whatsoever, and they said that over and over again in these interviews. <laughs> we had no idea what we were doing. Um, we had no permits. We just shot wherever we wanted to shot. I think it was like maybe like a three week shoot, something like that, something very quick. Seven days in New York yeah. City, and then we shot it in Connecticut at Sean Cunningham's house, no less. You know, this is this is particularly funny to me because I recently watched uh, Netflix's "The Movies That Made Us" yeah. series, and there's a whole episode about Friday the Thirteenth. And Sean, <laughs> Sean S. Cunningham's, you know, a talking head in it. And he's yeah. constantly saying the same stuff. And this is eight years later. Yeah, <laughs> He's just like, yeah. I have no idea what I'm doing. Like, he, like, the man literally, his whole life is not knowing what he's doing. So. <laughs> he's been pretty good at it, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, you know, I think there's definitely um, a hint here that things got out of control. Yeah. Uh, and you, you know, we'll talk about maybe like, uh, who's in this movie? Is anybody famous? No. <laughs> right. The, the cast was essentially who it was like soap opera stars. I think, uh, friend Lincoln, um, who plays a guy with the gray hair. He was a pornography actor. Mm. Um, so yeah, it was, it was a bunch of amateurs. I mean, based on what you see there, did you feel like this was like controlled or kind of uncontrolled in some way, the set and stuff like that? 
Yeah. I mean, I think the acting in particular gives it that, you know, in one, in some ways it helps in that like exploitation factor, like porn pornography yeah. <laughs> factor, because it it's bad. Um, it's stilted. <laughs> it, yeah, it's very stilted. You know, and, you know, the, the best editor in the world couldn't make the, 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 a flow happen um, in any of the scenes of dialogue. But, you know, I think, and I think this remains true throughout Craven's career. Um, he has a knack for knowing like what faces are going to like really give you an effect on screen. So like, obviously Fred Lincoln as one of the main baddies um, makes a lot of sense. And now that you mentioned that he was a pornography actor himself and it looks like not just that, he, <laughs> yeah, he, he directed them. He, he wrote them and edited them. So like, that that and there's also that kind of you know really horrible uh history of misogyny in you know porno pornography production yeah. so he gives that sense that like he's he is he does seem like he seems like a rapey kind of guy yeah um, definitely and then uh more on the side of uh, i don't know the name of the whoever plays the younger kid you know who the tenant more tentative <laughs> Oh yeah, um, so that would killer. be Krug's son, who's addicted to heroin. Yes, right? yes. A uh, Mark Scheffler, I believe his name is. Right, and all, similarly, like it, it was interesting, like getting a sense for uh, some of those archetypes you would get, you know, of like yeah. the Jamie Kennedy style character from Scream, where it's like you know he is very menacing, but also you're wondering like, oh, he's but he's is he essentially harmless, and uh same thing with like the victims like those the the main two actresses uh lucy grantham and who's the other one that she's also very interesting the oh, jeremy rain her friend yeah oh, no. yeah uh so jeremy rain plays um so sort That's of the, in the gang yeah oh she's yeah sadie right yeah who who went on to uh marry richard dreyfus and have a couple children what? yes 100 <laughs> percent. and they used they joke that you, you they're uh her kids joke that she's in the worst movie ever made essentially oh my gosh. um but uh who are you thinking of you thinking of uh, her kind of uh Phil is it phyllis the girl the, the phyllis stone the character. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so that's lucy grantham yep okay yeah so uh that where it's that similar kind of um you know, it's, it's the voyeurism of like following this, the main girl, but then also like that sidekick character where it feels very much like, uh, uh, like Sydney and Tatum in Scream. Yes, it, that's true. Yeah. And so, like, it, it, the vibe, the, once again, use the Zoomer term, the vibes are off, but like all <laughs> the ingredients are there. And so, like, it's really interesting. And they managed to also like make the parent characters mildly interesting too yeah. to the point where like they get you know roped back into the finale in a kind of home alone-esque situation <laughs> <laughs> yeah it was kind of that's good good call it right. home alone there the shaving right? cream what's that yeah <laughs> yeah tripwire yeah and then the, the, the tone is really fascinating in this movie because it's yes. like let's God, get into that. like they're i think the first hour is way more effective with that on some level. The last, you know, it's only 84 minutes, so it's an hour 24, essentially. Yeah. The last part, I just remember during the rewatch here, the opening juxtapositions mm -hmm. were so well done. I mean, um, and you teach film stuff. Like, if you could show this in a school, you probably can't. No, uh, I would do it. Fire it me. It just 
perfect. <laughs> like the scenes of like the train, they're hanging out at like the pond. Um, and then they're like, um, when they get kidnapped in the New York city apartment and they're basically being sexually assaulted and beaten, then it cuts to the parents making the cake for Mary and her birthday. And it's right. like, Oh my God. And it's so, it's so on the nose. Right. But it's so, it just works. It yes. gets the exact reaction that Craven wants out of us. Mm-hmm. That like, yes, like they are in a very dangerous situation. What does this mean? I'm going to tell you what it means by showing her parents making a birthday cake for her. You know, yeah. I'm going to shove it right in your face. Um, which he got a lot more laid back with that. I feel like as he went on, mm-hmm. uh, but nightmare is there's a lot of similar stuff in nightmare. That sort of juxtaposition of the yeah. warm domestic home and this sort of monster, vicious, horrible person who's lurking in the the shadows or dreams and that, in that case, um, what do you make it like? And there's also the comedic cop stuff going on. I know. I God, love how much Craven hates cops. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, um, it's it's so bizarre because on the one hand, uh, there is like this. It feels so awful to say because this is a movie that seems to revel in depicting, like you said, sexual violence. But yeah. there's some like interestingly progressive um, politics going on with how you know law enforcement is <laughs> depicted. As well as this whole like cyclical nature of you know parents being concerned that you know the new generation, the world has yeah. become too dangerous, um, and the new generation is naive about it, where which it plays super well uh, um, still today. Uh, but you have like um, I don't know. Do you, was there intent going in here with like saying you know we have to. I, I always I'm curious about this with self-aware horror. We talked about this a bit on the yeah. Cabin in the Woods episode um, with Evan from Spoiler Piece Theater. Yeah. Do you think that there's like a, a, any kind of like formal calculation, or is it all just kind of off the cuff when it comes to you know how how much comedy can we put into this and still think and still make it like a really uncomfortable time? You know, <laughs> like yeah, I think it was all intentional. Okay. Extremely intentional. In the same way that like Romero did that in Dawn of the Dead, where he has like the pie fight scene. Sure. Um, Yeah. yeah. Right. Like Craven is doing this on purpose to, it it makes the scenes of violence that much more deviant in some way. Mm. Um, And so, yeah, I think he's hyper self aware. Like this is, you know, this is essentially, it feels like an art, like a, a film school film almost like yeah. a student project like it's so over the top and in your face with its messaging uh, i which i find odd that a lot of people over the years have sort of not seen this that aspect to it you know like critics and stuff like that like we even at the bottom here we talk about i think it's like a, a classic critical response uh it's gene Siskel, the chicago tribune um he basically you know my objection to the last house on the left is not an objection to graphic representations of violence per se but to the fact that the movie celebrates violent acts, that's not true, particularly adult male abuse of young women, okay? I felt a professional obligation to stick around to see if there was any social re- uh, socially redeeming value in the remainder of the movie and found <laughs> none. I mean, I don't think these people are being dead. Like, I, I guess, okay, so we have, we know what their intention was on some level. 
we know we see it on screen and then we have these reactions. What's the disconnect? What's the disconnect between what they wanted to do, what's on there, and then how people are viewing it? Yeah, I mean, so it it always gets blurry, right, when you try to analyze intent. Um, but do you think that there was what's the, what's the, what's the origin of the desire to want to depict realistic violence on screen? Well, they they say that. Um... Craven says specifically that as an anti-war person during the Vietnam era, he felt like the um, sort of censored view of violence as was depicted on film, specifically like Westerns, they can bring up Westerns a couple of times, uh, and like John Wayne movies, was being translated over to real world violence against the Vietnamese hmm. in the sense that people would support the war in Vietnam and support the troops, even while we were just basically murdering millions of people over there. Uh, and that the truth of that violence was not being seen by Americans. And that's why they were allowing it to happen. So I think that's essentially his thesis was that if you depict realistic violence on screen and it disgusts you, that makes you mess less more likely to support, you know, invading a country. Like we're going to see pretty soon with Russia invading Ukraine. Like, you know what I mean? Like <laughs> there's, it's just like there, that's his thesis. Now, I don't know if I agree with that whatsoever, but I think that was his pretty, which is pointed. Yeah. Intention. It, which is in line with the progressive politics narratively of the story. Uh, yeah. Because there's this, you know, uh, never-ending cycle of uh, people in positions of authority and parents and uh, legislators that, you know, that's gone on over and over again. Violent video games, violent, violence in music, pop music lyrics. And do you think that there... What is... So we've, we've also touched on this a number of episodes... Is this ultimately kind of what shoot makes horror filmmakers shoot themselves in the foot? Because there, this is that that genre that has continually, you know, garnered cult following after cult following, and yet gets barely ever, barely ever gets any respect from like yeah. uh, upper echelon uh, film snobs, uh, sure. just like mainstream um, adults and authority figures. Is there? I, I don't know. I don't. I also don't know if I agree with the thesis, but it also is a. It's a pretty bold thing to say, especially when you come from a background of exploitation pornography, which yeah. is like literally, you know, causing violence, yeah. as sexual violence against people that are in you know in front of the camera by those behind the camera. Um, yeah, I mean, it's. Um, I, I would say what. Watching the 2003 interviews with Cunningham and Craven is interesting because there is a sense that they're kind of believing their own bullshit. Mm. Um, where it's sort of like, and Craven won't, and we have to say this, you know, this is one of the most censored films in film history. Yeah. It's been banned in several countries. It's still technically banned in the UK. Uh, you can get it, but the, the, I think whatever it is, the BBFC won't give it a theatrical certificate still to this day. Um, so it's a film that is very much in the gutter, so to speak. Um, and what I think 
what Craven has always said about this kind of over his career is that horror, because it's in the gutter, because it's viewed as this sort of very much other disgusting, abnormal, deviant behavior, that type of filmmaking, it gives you paradoxically the freedom to do whatever you want and say whatever you want. Yeah, yeah. But the problem is, to your point, is if you say it in that format, not a lot of people are going to listen. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's it, it's a weird sort of thing. And George Romero went through the same thing with the Day movies. He could hardly get the Dawn of the Dead and Day of the Dead made. He couldn't get it financed. Right. You know, here, you know, uh, and he had, you know, and those movies are just filled with social criticism. Um, there's much like they're like political like papers at the end of the day. Um, so he's saying all this intellectual, um, you know, quote unquote deep th stuff, but n you know, the people who see that are, you know, people like us later in life, you know, critics see it, but does the general public see it? And so it's like, is the message that Craven intended here, who is getting it and are they actually getting it? And there was an interesting comment. I love reading YouTube comments because it's like, yeah, give me the pulse of what people actually are saying out there. <laughs> uh, these, these, are you sure these are people? I've never met anybody. Nah, that nah, nah. Let's just assume they're people. Um, but underneath the, because this documentary is posted on YouTube, mm -hmm. um, and this is really gets into the intention and sort of repercussions of what you're doing. Um, a couple people quoted that uh, there's a really specific one about a woman who said her husband went to go see this in the movie theater back in the 70s, 72 when it came out. And he said that the men in the audience were like hooting, hooting, hollering yeah. when they were raping the girls or beating them. Holy and fuck. he said that he was so disgusted that he had to leave. So this is where this is where the gray area really becomes, you know, um, impenetrable. It, it's like. Yes, Craven and Cunningham had this really high fluent intellectual idea to show realistic violence on screen. They do that, and I think they're successful in doing that with the intention that, oh, if people see this, they'll be disgusted, which they were, some, but it'll make them rethink violence. Maybe that's not the case, right? Maybe that's not the case at all. Maybe people saw this, like this person, on, you know, who knows if it's real or not, and people celebrated it. Uh, and Fred Lincoln, who's, you know, obviously one of the baddies in the film and a pornographic actor said, famously said, you know, like hundreds of women were raped because of this movie and he completely disavows his, um, uh, being in it. So it's like, you see, it's like a minefield almost. Yeah. And it's like, does the intellectual intent actually get out to the quote unquote masses or is it completely lost? Well, and I then, know, it, you know, it's Uroboros eating its tail. 20 years 25 years later when scream 2 comes out and <laughs> that that once again it's like an intellectual comment that fantastic opening scene with jada pinkett smith literally dying as everybody's you know cheering on the murder happening on screen in the stab movie right yeah. uh but you know uh I, we were pretty smart <laughs> 13 year olds yeah. and yet like uh, I can't I cannot imagine being in a, a theater and the people around me understanding like the the nuance of that kind of scene. Yeah, 100%. And like uh, just like currently how this movie sits, uh, this movie is free on Tubi, on Pluto oh, yeah. TV. 
Like I and I watched. And I was like, "How is this happening?" I know. Like, how is this out Interrupted in the world? with like tight ends? Yeah. You know, I don't know. I, mean, I don't know. There's a whole other thing you talk about, like the internet and people. Like you see, you go on the internet right now and see people die. There's thousands upon thousands of people dying. Yep. On the, you know, videos and stuff of real violence. Yep. Oh man, I don't even know how to place this movie. It's like so tough. I mean. We do have to say, yeah, is it self-aware? I mean, that's really the true question here. I think the answer is probably yes, right? Yes. Uh, it's just, it's the question of, like, message receiver, right? Like, yeah. a film can be self-aware. It's film. It, the filmmakers behind it can be magnanimously self-aware. Yeah. And if that, but if that, you know, if there's a lost in translation effect, it doesn't even fucking matter. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's true. That's a good point. Like, it doesn't matter. Right. Like, um, I think they're like Cabin in the Woods is like the most self aware film. I yeah. think we covered this cycle or volume, whatever, of film <laughs> trace. And yet I'm sure there were still people like hooting and hollering when, like, <laughs> you know, they're getting gassed in the cabin and doing, you know, the most obscene, stereotypical things. Uh, but then, then, then it brings me the way it lights up in my head is uh, Wall Street. Wolf of Wall Street, like yeah, those yeah, films that, that same are thing. supposedly, you know, parables of you shouldn't do this sort of stuff because this is what happens become absolutely celebrated. Right. Or like Walter White in Breaking Bad. People oh, are yeah. rooting for Walter White. Yeah. And like and wanting like, Skyler to die. And yeah. And the whole point was that like, no, this is like the <laughs> it's worst literally thing in the, world. In the title. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, so, but. The, Oh, go ahead. Th there was an interesting uh, note here that you uh, researched about um, this uh, small movie theater in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, called the Paris yes. Cinema, yeah. when the movie opened in 1972. Because you know, you had this comment a few minutes ago where it's like, especially with you know years of looking back on film history and being able to like pick it apart. But like in the moment in 1972, on the one hand, you have that YouTube comment you mentioned where it's just like the masses just completely misreading what's happening to them on screen. But like, there's still something to be said because I like this statement that the cinema put out when there were protesters trying to get them to stop uh, showing the film. Yeah. Um, they wrote uh, in 1972, after carefully considering all the circumstances, management has decided to continue to show the movie. The difficult decision was predicated on the following considerations. The film relates to a problem that practically every teenage girl and parent can identify with, yet does not pander to the subject matter. The story does not glorify violence, nor does it glorify the degenerates who perpetrate the violence. We feel the movie is morally redeeming and does deliver an important social message. <laughs> That's kind of an interesting distillation of, uh, you know, the kind of complicated morass that we've been swimming through this episode. Uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, on the uh, one hand, I want to, I want to agree with that overall statement, but on the other hand, like even while just reading it aloud, there's still like those flashes of this awful imagery from the film that is going to probably take me weeks to, get out of my head but yeah maybe that's the point too i don't know it it is interesting i mean the one that we can't um take away from craven is that this is a rape revenge film mm -hmm. right ultimately the people who perpetrate these awful acts on the young women are killed in horrific ways right um and it's also the same thing with i spit on your grave 
um and that one had the same sort of reaction when people saw that um you know she comes back and basically you know spoiler alert kills all of her rapists uh in awful ways so it's sort of like as much as i want to i don't want to say craven was you know oh he's such brilliant and and did this amazing thing and was so smart um you know he did give the average viewer a pretty clear map to where to go yeah uh with this film uh and it's sort of like uh, on the one side yeah you don't know how people are going to react when you release something but also you don't have control over that um and so you know i think last house on the left is a film that you know if you're into film studies and want to understand you know the origin of horror films keep in mind this is before texas chainsaw massacre too uh, so sure. when you look at the beginning of modern horror, to me, it's, it's movies like this and um, Night of Living Dead in 1968. Like, this is really the birth of modern horror. Uh, and it's, it's important in those aspects. Um, and, and the censorship of it, to me, especially back then, felt very gut, uh, like a gut reaction to what was happening. I mean, you, you even had people in the production booths cutting the film. Yeah. There's like a joke where essentially, you know, what cut are you going to get? Because the projection is going to cut the stuff he doesn't like or she doesn't like. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, you know, on the one hand, it's sort of, a, a, it is a morass without a doubt. But I, my perspective is, you know, this film definitely should not be buried or censored or pushed away in any sort of way. It should be sort of, uh, I think, cordoned off, if that makes sense. Um, I do not think... You know, someone seeing this outside the context of a film studies situation doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Well, it's interesting you say it that way, because essentially that'd be like another kind of uh, white coater loophole, right? True. You don't, true, have, true. you don't have the doctor in a white coat introducing the film, but you have like a film historian. HBO Max did this recently. It was a big, uh, you know, to do on film Twitter when they started taking some more uh, problematic films from film history's past, like Gone with the Wind, and yeah. uh, not censoring them, not cutting them, not taking them off the streaming service, but having them introduced by film historians that know their shit and are able to like place it in the context of you know what what you're about to watch. Um, yeah. I don't think Tubi's going to do that for Last House on the Left, unfortunately. No, no, of course <laughs> not. Um, and that, and that's you know I think that's my my perspective there is it, yeah it, just watching this film for enjoyment it, not right probably <laughs> not the right thing to do <laughs> um you know as part of some sort of broader context and studying film i think it makes a lot of sense but how do we let's let's transition over to our a little lighter fare with yeah. the fearless vampire hunters <laughs> uh well yeah oh, killers but... sorry fearless vampire <laughs> killers or pardon okay. me but your teeth are in my neck there's so yeah so many uh different names for this especially when you go international it was also adapted into a german language stage musical called dance of the vampires 20 years later 30 years later um so this is roman polanski's fourth film and it is uh for all intents and purposes the most outward comedy of all the films we've covered yeah. uh so far it's uh not nearly as steeped in um commentary uh, like a lot of these films, it's mostly just a romp 
essentially, with yeah. uh, Roman Polanski playing um, the assistant to a vampire hunter slash professor, whatever, um, played by Jack McGowan, um, who was, I guess, most known at the time as like the the main actor that playwright Samuel Beckett worked with um, in Europe. Uh, he also had some memorable parts in John Ford's The Quiet Man in 52, and then Polanski's previous film, his third movie, Cul-de-Sac in 66. Uh, but probably what's most notable about the cast in this film is that it also co-stars Sharon Tate. This is on the set where Polanski met her, and they soon after uh, became involved and got married, and then she was murdered two years later by the Manson family. So, like, even though this movie is essentially uh, pretty easy to write off, just um, indulgence in terms of, like, it's literally just Polanski trying to have fun and make a vampire movie and probably have a reason to, like, uh, go to the mountains of Germ or of Italy um, mm-hmm. to film something. Uh, but it, it's it's steeped in film history because of that. And it's using so many horror elements from the classic, Bram Stoker's Dracula story to uh, a lot of the kind of Abbott and Costello um, yeah. style, uh, you know, Bela Lugosi himself kind of, you know, w- made that full circle uh, throughout his career, uh, as did so many other actors that played vampires or monsters and monster movies. And so this is where it really got me thinking, and I'm curious because uh, we texted a little bit and we both kind of agreed this it's it's kind of hard to get through it's not it's not necessarily entertaining uh you know 55 years later but it is um a curio because like how much of the horror movie genre before arguably craven and cunningham resuscitated it in the 70s along with romero and several others um how much you know was it was the genre essentially dead was had we gotten so far into b-movie territory um by the 60s that uh monster movies weren't really seen as something that could be a scary and b intelligent yeah i mean it's a great movie to choose because it feels like the end of the line essentially It, it, it's so hard to put into words how boring this movie was to me personally um because it just did not have i think it's hard too because and this goes back to the whole self-aware horror theme is that when you're doing commentary on the genre and other films a lot of that is rooted rooted in the historical context of when that movie came out so when this comes out in 1967 it's looking to these other vampire movies that came out over the previous you know 30 years essentially um and i think it would make make a lot more sense and i think it's also a literary self-awareness here because mm-hmm. you know dracula has a longer history in literature than it does in film right and it's sort of tapping into all of those things and i'm sitting there watching it and i was like well that's cool and all but like we've also had 60 more years of vampire history <laughs> and so it just doesn't you know it doesn't connect at all with me the th- it, it, it is worth seeing in the sense that it's beautifully shot uh it was restored beautifully in the, in the cut that i saw it looks fantastic yeah um really great set scenes uh or set pieces i mean um 
and it's you know and Polanski is interesting and you know Sharon Tate is beautiful to see on screen I mean just it's a very vibrant film um but the plot is just it just <laughs> reminds me of being a young kid and having to see an old movie and you're just like wait what like this is what's happening number one i don't even understand what's happening most of the time because it's a different sort of vernacular of filmmaking Mm -hmm. in two um something happened in uh filming in in the 60s and 70s that completely changed the whole thing yeah uh where this feels so um rooted in like an old studio type movie like from the 40s and 50s that it just doesn't the artifice is so strong here and you look at it's perfect to juxtapose against last house on the left because it was made by essentially people who are copying documentary filmmakers sending back footage from vietnam Mm -hmm. and it's like you could not imagine two more diametrically opposed films and i think it's obvious where culture went culture went last house on the left for better or worse it went down that path of trying to depict realistic violence to scare the hell out of you whereas the fearless vampire killers it's yeah it's like an episode of laughing like it's just <laughs> yeah it's it, it's pure escape escapism yeah and is, there's a there's a uh fun in that right mm-hmm. but you know it's um it, on some level this is actually a little bit more connected to cabin in the woods yeah totally Totally. Where it's the end of the line, essentially. And I think Cabin in the Woods was the end of live the post scream era. Like you right. couldn't. Where else are you going to go? You know. Uh, uh, we yeah we white we you know uh, come back around to uh, you know quote elevated horror. Right? Yeah, that's you what happened. Right? You know. Um. So it, it makes sense. It, it, once again, uh, cyclical nature. I think is a phrase that we've used a lot, and that is essentially what's happening. Which is, I think, especially interesting considering that, you know, a few years before this, Polanski makes Repulsion, uh, which is still kind of seen as one of the more viscerally arresting um, uh, films of the 1960s, and then would, you know, end the 60s with Rosemary's Baby. Which is, yeah, perfect. Right. So, like, to, like, kind of do this in the middle feels like a diversion um, at most. Uh, which is kind of you know curious thinking about Polanski's own history, not just with the statutory rape, but also with the um, uh, his family, you know, barely making it out of the Holocaust. Yeah, and he so he he is an artist that has so much baggage, both personally and culturally, and this film really plays awkwardly but it also played awkwardly back when it came out a contemporaneous review from ebert is one of his notable one-star reviews from when he was getting started uh in chicago he said the night i went to see the fearless vampire killers nobody laughed one or two people cried and a lady behind me dropped a bag of m&ms which rolled under the seats and a guy on the center aisle sneezed at 43 minutes past the hour but that was about all the action there wasn't even a dog that ran onto the playing field which is just like pure just ebert at his you know bad movies um, but peak. he's also like if you read the first part of the review because i came across it too 
it's a very sort of like gonzo journalist review. Oh, totally. Right. <laughs> so it's again, that weird juxtaposition of like the, even the critics were moving on towards a different style and viewpoint of, of viewing film in general. And it's, yep. Yeah. I mean, I, this has to be sort of the origin of what we're talking about in self-aware horror in the sense that like, there is a self-awareness to earlier horror films that's pointing to uh, more literature than other films, but to the, the story of, of, you know, um, Dracula and stuff like that, there is a sort of intertextuality to it all. But once you hit the late sixties, early seventies, what is that shift? You know, is it more than just, Hey, let's show real life. Uh, is there something else going on with the self-awareness? You know, when we look at like Last House on the Left, what is it self-aware about? It doesn't necessarily seem self-aware about other films per se. It's more self-aware about actual like lived experience in life. Right. And like um, you said, the, the documentary Vietnam aspect. Yeah. Of, like violence on screen, right? The first televised war. So and, do you think that there's, I mean, do you do, yes. Uh, do you think that there's a, parallel to that in terms of like as we were talking about you know whether we look more recently like the 2010s and yeah the cabin woods being kind of a death knell sure um but then also like looking at uh the 90s and you know the petering out with dead alive until yeah. scream comes roaring back and i mean this this cycle can you pretty much can you match it up politically and i mean i mean you could yeah i mean it's like if you if you say cabin in the woods is sort of the end of the post scream era and then you get into elevated horror it follows raw um hereditary midsummer stuff like that um the witch would be probably uh -huh. another one um what i'm seeing there though is sort of like i always thought that like yeah that was a return to the 70s horror filmmaking like last house on the left and texas chainsaw massacre specifically and some Halloween as well. But what's weird about this sort of recent elevated horror is that it still doesn't have what this, what Last House on the Left has and what specifically um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre has. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have it. Ari Asher, I think, comes sort of close, but I think he's too kind of full of himself to go there. Um, it doesn't have the visceral rawness. The closest thing I've seen recently was um, the remake of uh, The Hills Have Eyes oh, back gosh. in like 2007. And we didn't the, even talk about the remake of Last House on the Left. Yeah, oh God, yeah. Let's, let's, <laughs> can we not? Uh, yeah, we, we cannot. But I, I, I would say that like there is still something um, unique about that time period in the seventies and what they were doing and what Wes Craven was doing. And yeah, it was a mess of a production and people were really uncomfortable and they got hurt mentally and emotionally by being in this movie, no doubt. And there's multiple stories about the set being uncontrolled and Craven not knowing what he was doing and the female participants being treated extraordinarily poorly. Um, that's all, you know, there for us. But at the same time, you know, uh, what's on screen is so crazy and unique that it, I don't know. Have you seen anything in recent times that you would connect to this at all? 
Um, may I point you to a little movie of last year called Malignant? No, I'm just. <laughs> just don't do this to me. I just literally <laughs> you said Malignant, like a like, pit in my stomach. I almost threw up. It's like the worst movie I've ever seen. Oh God, I love it. Um, <laughs> no, I I think that there is something to be said for, uh, if not desensitivity, but um, I think like you said, Ari Aster's uh, Midsummer, the opening scene in particular. Yes. Uh, yeah feels like the closest right yeah. to that kind of just gut punch and once again intellectualized but you know how much can you value that when it it, it just ruins your day you know exactly yeah. um i don't know i think that there's uh th there's terrain to go but it is interesting uh to look at this in context of you know the the reboot of Scream coming out, um, well, in the midst of people yeah. pretending that we're not in a pandemic anymore. <laughs> where yeah, exactly, and there's going to be another world war or war, land war in Europe. Yeah, right? yeah. Like, the, do, do you have like a sense of uh, I? Well, okay. First, sure. let me run this down, and then maybe we can wrap things up and yeah, with yeah. a question I have for you, because I do think you're right. I think that you know, fearless, fearless uh, vampire killers has that kind of. Um, energy to it where it's like everything's empty um even though there's qualities redeeming qualities to it um but uh one other thing that's been curious about how horror films have be been reevaluated as self-aware years later um 1962's whatever happened to baby jane going back further in the mm -hmm. 60s yeah. uh is an absolute amazing film Fantastic. with bet davis and joan crawford and it was very much seen as horrific and uh what that kind of visceral feeling yeah. um back when it came out and there's still a lot of those elements to it if you watch it uh you know 60 years later today but it also has developed this huge reputation as one of the origins of camp right sure. of this kind of you know i mean use the word elevated horror the movie also got five oscar nominations <laughs> yeah. even though it's got this kind of like wink in its eye where it's just like batshit crazy like <laughs> it feels like the equivalent of malignant getting five oscar nods in my oh. dreams um then in uh further back in history 1957 night of the demon jacques turner who made cat people and out of the past uh speak and if anything that i feel like that is one of uh that's a self-aware noir um film and so th this guy created this basically sat satanic cult movie um that revolves around you know whether or not the demon will be revealed by the end of the film it's one of scorsese's favorite horror movies but it has once again been reevaluated over the years especially in terms of like 50s uh special effects and yeah. you know you could say the same thing with like movies like the blob and them where mm -hmm. they they were definitely seen as kind of brutishly scary back when they were released but are seen as like fun and um you know stereotypical today and then 1952 kind of coming full circle to looking at fearless vampire killers as the end line of this kind of abbott and costello style uh comedy meets horror almost like mel brooks dracula dead and loving yeah. it right. uh end of the line just really scrape in the bottom of the barrel um mother riley meets the vampire came out in 52 which literally took the plot from abbott and costello meet dracula but then played it completely serious yeah so like this has been going on you know since 
the era of you know, Nosferatu and yeah. Buster Keaton. And it it makes sense that these cycles uh, are, are, you know, inherently cyclical because they live and they die and they are reborn again. But so this come, brings me to my question that can hopefully uh, you can answer because I, I feel so lost in it having seen Last House on the Left for the first time. Yeah. You know, <laughs> as I'm pushing 40, <laughs> um, and you saw it when you were in college, and I feel like our minds yeah. are so, like you said, ex- as an active rebellion, maybe in your conservative conservative campus. Mm-hmm. And I've also like thought way differently about you know how I view the, the kind of exploitation films that we grew up with in the '90s, like Tarantino yeah. films. Mm-hmm. And it's like I treat that so differently in my head now than I did as just like pure like curiosity and uh just like i don't know angsty male like hormonal shit yeah when i saw pulp fiction when i was way too young um how do you how do you how do you deal with that in terms of like do you think that there's more than just um do you think that there's a purpose to having these self-aware horror movies get to the young and undeveloped mind? Or do you think yeah, that they're just for that. us? No, I, I think that like, um, you know, you think about like last time's left and when he's making it, he's essentially making it for younger people because those are the people who are getting sent over to die. 18, mm. 19 year old, 20 year olds, mm. all getting shot up. Uh, and like a movie like that is sort of like it makes people hopefully the intention is to make them question their world. And I'll tell you this, man, when I saw this movie, it completely this and I spit in your grave completely changed my perspective on human beings almost immediately. You know, growing up in a place where, you know, I, you know, I didn't see in Harley any violence in Brookfield, Wisconsin. You know, I didn't <laughs> see um, any of this. And I see it and I was like, oh wow like there's a whole world out there that i have no concept of um so i do think it is important that and this movie technically is now rated r uh so anybody over the age of 17 can go see it but i think it, it it's important that young people see these movies but 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 and the huge but um in the context of some sort of, and this is, this is me being a hypocrite. I'm being a hypocrite right now. I'm just going to call it because <laughs> I saw this without any context whatsoever. I read it online, like all movies. And it was like, this is a really crazy West Craven horror movie. I was like, what's that? Let me go see it. I think I rented it from like the wake forest library, which I they had. Um, and yeah, I saw it without any sort of structure. I wasn't, I was an English major. So it was West Craven. Love them. Uh, and so are you, right? Yeah. Uh, it's crazy. The crazy, you got to watch out for the English majors. We're nuts. Um, <laughs> and uh, I saw it without much context at all, but I was also at the same time curious about how it came to be, why it was important. I was asking all of those right. questions as like a 22 year old, 21 year old, whenever I saw it. That's not the case with some young people. Some young people just watch stuff, consume it, and be like, okay, whatever um so you're so, saying this is my job since i teach you are a teacher <laughs> uh and you do teach film studies i am saying that uh no like this movie should not be locked up and put away so um 
you know, there's some people who are our age or basically sociopaths and they saw this movie and might get ideas literally. And so it's like, you know, you have to be careful about how we're sort of delineating how to censor something. Um, but no, I think, I think this movie should be out in the open. It should be talked about, uh, people should be able to see it, but I do, I want Wes Craven, I want a video of Wes Craven in front of this movie, uh, (laughs) describing why he made it. To me, that makes way more sense than just watching this thing straight up because it's absolutely, um, a brutal watch, uh, that can absolutely change a young person's development in mind without a doubt. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, so let's uh, get on that. Film Trace is going to once again reboot as a... Um, <laughs> yeah, true. is an educational resource. <laughs> <laughs> well, what a volume of self-aware horror that uh, this season slash cycle has taken us. Yeah. Um, we, don't, we don't know quite yet what we're doing next. We have some ideas. But, yeah, I'm uh, not sure. What are we gonna do? Hmm. We're gonna. We're not we're doing gonna, horror. I know that. Um, no, we're gonna take a break. What do you think about rom coms? Oh. Let's do. It's all. My two favorite dramas are horror and rom com. So yeah, that's where I'm at these days. It's just a different kind of horror. But <laughs> <laughs> oh man, uh, I love it. Uh, thanks for listening. This has been Phil Trace. Mm-hmm.